where groups of um, young Jewish European uh, students and some Israeli students, a couple of North Americans, we went as sort of an entourage to confront Mr. Ahmadinejad. This is where Ahmadinejad was the only world leader to show up at this United Nations um, conference where he preached his, um, <coughs> I'm using my word very clearly and carefully, his genocidal anti-Semitism and his uh, sexism and homophobia and the like. And um, it was actually an amazing, I think, moment in, in history. I think actually a spark was created in Geneva where young Jewish students were joined by many Rwandans, uh, people from Darfur, North Africans, a lot of Berbers, dissidents from Iran and Iraq, women's groups, gay groups. It was a whole sort of uh, coalition of people who I think literally bumped into each other in the halls and realized that there is a common cause uh, to, to confront radical Islam. And I've told the story before, but after I, I participated on a panel um, which was entitled Genocide, the Road to the Racism, the Road to Genocide, in which I was speaking about incitement to genocide, there was somebody from Darfur speaking about the ongoing genocide, and somebody from Rwanda speaking about, uh, it was the 15th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. And I remember after the lecture, Cynthia and her colleagues from the Rwandan mission invited me to speak and to have coffee. And one of the messages that was very profound for me was that many people in the mission were saying to me, you know, don't the Jews in the United States, don't Americans understand what is going on? That the dehumanization of Israelis, of Zionists, of, Israel, of, of Jews in the Middle East, and the sort of the narrative of, the, of Mr. Ahmadinejad is exactly what happened in Rwanda leading up to the genocide. And they, the people from the mission were imploring me to tell American Jews and scholars and intellectuals to wake up, that this level of dehumanization is something that they witnessed in Rwanda, and it's extraordinarily dangerous. So the, the concern and the solidarity that, the, that Cynthia and her colleagues, uh, I guess, imparted to me was uh, heartfelt and I think uh, important. And there's a lot of uh, cooperation by people in Rwanda to, to the history of uh, the Holocaust, the Shoah, and, and also to the Israeli situation. So it's uh, nice to welcome a friend. Um, so Cynthia is going to speak today. The title of her talk is Genocide and the Assault on Memory, the Case of Rwanda. Cynthia Kamikaze is the multilateral officer for the permanent mission of Rwanda to the United Nations in Geneva. Uh, she's also a PhD student at the School of Geneva um, in Diplomacy and the Berkeley University campus in Geneva in international relations, and she's a specialist on international law. She got her first degree, her BA, from Luther College in Iowa, where she was a triple major in psychology, business, and French literature. She went on to do a master's at the University of Essex in the UK in issues of human rights, in theory and practice of human rights. Um, she has a wide history, I can go on for a long time, about her participation in NGOs and human rights <coughs> internationally. Um, for example, in 2007, she was the, human rights, the United Nations Human Rights Accountability Project Coordinator for the Office of International Affairs. In 06, 07, she was a research and translation assistant uh, for Christian Aid in London. She worked with African Pulse, which is a research and fundraising organization in London and the list goes on. So it's really an honor that you're here. And, and Thank you. Thank you all. Um, I'm actually I'm really happy and um, honored to stand here and um, share with you some thoughts and experiences and observations on the genocide committed against the Tutsi in Rwanda and the current trend of it. Um, I'm very honored being invited and uh, to be able to speak to you about what is happening and um, what we have made um, our campaign or our work to raise awareness about the current trends of the side. So um, there is an old modern saying that goes like, at the end of the day, after all of his good, good works, 
In Rwanda and elsewhere, God comes home to Rwanda to sleep, as it is the most beautiful place in the world. And this is the truth. <laughs> um, this land of a thousand hills and valleys is for me the most beautiful place on earth, but yet in, at some point in time it became the blood-drenched land of the million atrocities. December of last year, around the world, we commemorated the 60th anniversary of the Convention on Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. A few months after, in April of 2009, for Rwandan people and all their friends, we marked the 15th anniversary of genocide committed against the Tutsi in Rwanda. On both occasions, we remember not only those victims who needlessly lost their lives, or the gallant men and women who fought and lost their lives so that we, all of us here, may live on but we are also gathered here on this day in praise of all those who stood firm in the resolve, in the pursuit of civil sanity and justice, and who lived to tell the world what they saw. There is a short Nigerian proverb of the Yoruba people which states that if you go to a place that no one has ever been to before, you will see what no man has ever seen before. And in the Rwanda of 1994, those who have lived, the victorious, the vanquished, and even the visitor, have all been to that place that no one ever has ever been to before, and have seen all, have seen what no man has ever seen before. The place of which I speak in time and space is none other than the genocide of 1994, the genocide committed against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Genocide is, the pl is that place that exists at the final limit of destructive human experience. And with these experiences shared and the lesson learned, this event, this place in time marks a turning point, not only in the history of Rwanda, but also in history of all mankind. It is therefore we, all of us here, alongside all those who have been to that place, we, we are who are now duty-bound for the sake of our children and our children's children, duty-bound to keep alive and unmodified factual account of the events of genocide committed against the Tutsi without so much bit of revision or negation. negation. Today, ladies and gentlemen, is a resounding trumpet call for all those who have seen or heard of that place, the place at the limit of human experience, to speak out, to speak always, and most of all, to speak truthfully. The story of genocide is as old as the history of organized power, if not as time itself. But of the 20th century, it begins in Africa, in the arid desert sands of Omahake, what we call today the Kalahari of Namibia, and it ends in Africa, in the amidst the lush, in Africa meets the lush green hills and valleys of Rwanda, and as it, this, if, and as if this was not enough, of the 21st century, it begins in Africa yet again in another desert. At the time, this time in the arid desert sand of Darfur in Sudan. <coughs> Genocide, as defined by the United Nations in the 1948 Convention, is a crime against humanity, and it is taken to mean acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups. And these acts include killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group, deliberately deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, imposing measures intended to prevent birth within this group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Indeed, genocide is one of the deepest problems of human thought. The management of genocide should therefore call for the very best efforts of human reflection and human endeavor, and in so doing, no story must go untold.
No one, not one person, victor, vanquished, or visitor, who has been to that place, the place on the very fringe of humanity, not one of them should ever remain silent about the truth. A French critic, critic and journalist and novelist, Jean-Baptiste Carr, <coughs> described where the irony of life when he said, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. More things change, the more they stay the same. And what has not changed through all the ages are the eight stages of genocide. These stages were articulated by Gregory Stanton in his address to the US Department in 1996. He rationalized that genocide was a process that developed in eight overlapping stages, which he named classification, symbolization, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, extermination, and denial. Each of these stages is predictable, progressive, and stoppable. The later stages must be preceded by the earlier stages. Though earlier stages continue to operate throughout the process such that by the end of demonic dramatic mixture, all simultaneous stages unfold in unison. Today, ladies and gentlemen, in addition of these stages, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Ian Paul Aulich, preliminary stage of genocide, which he called the pretext. In the pretext stage, man in his spiritual, greedy, simplistic stage of of mind goes about his daily businesses, encountering both pleasures and prejudices with ease and familiarity. <coughs> Many of the utterances heard and prejudices felt during the fever pitch of genocide are the same words uttered and prejudices expressed during civil disharmony. It's during this preliminary phase that the, negati the negative emotions of population are fomented, harnessed, and then galvanized. I will attempt to give you a common pretext. If those people go away, back to where they came from, then our problems will be solved and we will live in a peace and harmony as brothers and sisters in our land where the rivers will turn to milk, the rain into honey, and where all the streets will soon be paved with gold. How often all of us inside and outside Rwanda heard this very same utterances in our own spheres of life. In the case of Rwanda, it was for Tutsis to return to Chad, Egypt, Ethiopia, or biblical Mesopotamia, or whatever it was that Hutu were made to believe the Tutsi had come from. The atmosphere in Rwanda was widespread with embellished rumors of past atrocities supposedly committed by the Tutsi and of the past subservient war and subhuman <coughs> status that the Hutu were supposedly forced to endure against their will and would endure again if the Tutsi were ever to return to political power. The first of the Gregory Stanton eight stages of genocide is, is classification. Genocidal classification is the classification of people into us and them by ethnicity, race, <coughs> religion, or nationality. In this case, it was to be classification by ethnicity into Hutu, Tutsi, and Kwa. Such classification and, and identification was formally introduced during the Belgian colonial era and integrated into the structure of national identity document issued to all citizens of Rwanda, starting from 1962. I remember as a young girl of age five being asked by my teacher what ethnic group I belonged to, and I responded with pride the only answer I knew, I'm Rwandan. I then got the beating of my life and was told to leave the classroom and come back only when I knew what I was. This system forced all persons to be affiliated with one or other group, with the government-defined groups. It goes without saying that during the time of crisis, this formal classification and the identification <coughs> greatly facilitated the, the targeting of persons on the basis of group uh, affiliation, making all Tutsi readily identifiable for marginalization, oppression, and subsequent extermination. In the next stage, the stage of symbolization, the characteristic of the target group were defined. Target, targeted Rwanda nationals were pref preferentially referred to as being Tutsi as opposed to being called Rwandan, 
and were distinguished by their physical appearances. A typical Tutsi was described as identified was described and identified as being tall, thin, with a long neck and a long nose. Anyone who fitted this description was a potential target, Tutsi or non-Tutsi. Classification and symbolization was universally is a human a universally human and do not necessarily result in progress towards genocide unless they reach the next stage, dehumanization. <coughs> Dehumanization is the stage during which one group denies the humanity of the other group. Members of this victim group are typically equated with animals, <coughs> vermin, insects, and diseases. Stanton hypothesizes that dehumanization helps perpetrators to overcome the normal human disgust against murder. In Rwanda, it was the order of the day for the Tutsi to be referred to as cockroaches. In Yenzi, in our native language, Kinyapanda. At this stage, hate propaganda in print on hate radio, such as Radio Medikudin, was used to vilify the Tutsi and fire up the predominantly Hutu masses into an emotionally energized mob. <coughs> a mob that would soon need leadership, organization to harness and channel its pulsating energy and bring us to the next phase of our liberation, that of organization. The organization of genocide in Rwanda, as it has been on all genocides throughout history, was achieved with the support of states. In Rwanda, the state machinery used militia to provide operational genocidal functions, thereby facilitating the option of future deniability of state involvement. Through the years preceding 1994, special army units and militia were trained and armed, the most notorious of which were the Inherahange and the Muzamika Ambi. Sometimes organization was informal and decentralized in the form of inspired neighborhood watch groups or institutional guns. Plans were made for the genocidal killing, some of which necessitated the purchase and stockpiling of my of manner of, of all manners of weapons. It is no secret that the arms trade is a multi-billion dollar inherently dirty global trade. With the, this in mind, the Rwandan government at the time had no difficulty selling to the world the idea that they were not the aggressor, that in fact, they were the ones under attack and needed to defend the country against the terrorist group within its border whose Uganda-based counterparts were soon to invade the sovereign space of the Republic of Rwanda. Given the state of affairs at this time, this was indeed a plausible and perhaps justifiable reason for anyone with either a limited or biased knowledge of the country to comply. Numerous countries near and far, likely and unlikely, easy to name but not diplomatic to name, along with numerous companies, listened to the call and complied. The stage was now set for all to proclaim their loyalty or else. This tone, this was the tone characterized, that characterized the stage of polarization. Polarization by way of Hutu extremist doctrines and practices drove Rwanda society apart, <coughs> paralyzing the society and all men of color therein into Hutu and Tutsi and nothing else. The primary enemy, the Tutsi, was defined and described and any other person or groups of persons or thought, person known or thought to be sympathetic to or remotely assembling a Tutsi was upgraded to the status of potential enemy. <coughs> if you were an African American living in Rwanda at the time, now was the time to leave and quickly. Head groups in, in, intensified the broadcast of polarizing <coughs> propaganda of the, over the radio and public gatherings in schools and colleges and churches. Intermarriage or social interaction was taboo. Extremists, extremists targeted and terrorized moderate Hutus, intimidating and silencing them, giving them a clear cho choice. You are either with us or against us. <coughs> moderate Hutu from within the perpetrators' own group were numerous and influential, and therefore the most likely and most able to stop the evolution of the genocide. The elimination, the elimination of influential moderate Hutu was therefore a strategic security priority 
and indeed they were to become amongst the first to be arrested, tortured, and executed. Then came the preparations. The preparation took place nationwide, and the fabric of society was rearranged to become more vulnerable to assault. In Rwanda, terror and chaos, chaos was the modus operandi of this preparatory phase. Death lists were drawn up and disseminated throughout the country as open secrets. All to see families, mine included, were aware of being on the list, but none truly believed that this would actually take place with the UN around. Sporadic rape, killings, and the expropriation of property were used to drive a clear message home. Terrified nationals fled the unprotected confines of the home. The rural and urban society spontaneously segregated and concentrated into open fields, schools, churches, hotels, and stadia. These became the de facto concentration camps. Within these confines, victims were identified and separated out on the basis of their ethnic identity, perceived identity or complicity with the Tutsi, and were dealt with. The extermination, which by the way was already in process, escalated in the night of the 6th of April 1994 and quickly became the masculine legally called genocide. The spark that ignited the genocidal inferno was the sudden death of former President Iman <coughs> in a plane crash in the same night. It remained extermination to the killers because in the frantic state, they did not regard the victim to be fully human, preferring to refer to the tutor as cockroaches in anything. These killings were generally referred to as work or clearing the bush. At the time, it was common to hear on the radio sentences such as top tutors in X neighborhood were killed today. We have done good work. Or a Y person in a Y neighborhood is still, is still not being found, so we still have work to, be, to do as we haven't found the bodies of these major cockroaches. Because of this sponsored, because it was sponsored by the state, the armed forces often worked hand in hand with militia to do the killings. The pretext that we referred to before is applicable and very relevant at this stage as well. What then transpired in Rwanda is very described and can only be described by those who were at that place, the abyss on the very fringe of humanity. Though I cannot bring myself to return to you countless stories that I have heard, I will instead share with you the memory of the title of an article in Time magazine that was published at the height of genocide and raid. There are no more devils in hell. They are all in Rwanda. <coughs> History was made in Rwanda. Unlike any other atrocities before it, the genocide against the Tutsi came came to us in real time through the mass media. <coughs> Photographers and journalists transmitted live telecasts of men, women and children being intercepted, urgent, and hacked to the earth. They beamed into our homes and into our lives, the screams of fleeing, the trapped, the raped, the wounded, and the dying. We all witnessed the movement, the impunity, and the savagery of, dying, of a dying nation gone mad. Then there were the plethora of newspapers and magazines, the radio, the telephone, and the internet. There were also tales of horror from countless survivors. Needless to say, there was the mountain body count that washed up on the northern shores of Lake Victoria. In our age of information, it is safe for us to say today that indeed the whole world was at that place. The deep, that deep dark abyss on the very fringe of humanity in Rwanda, and we're all still in that place. The world and its human organs stood by and waited with food, shelter, and medicine in hand for the traditionally anticipated flood of Rwandan refugees to flee across the borders into neighboring countries. And when this did not happen, the assumption in various national offices was that, <coughs> that there was no genocide, but an exaggerated media account of a, a low-grade civil war. What was poorly understood was that because of the integral involvement of population, the most vulnerable Rwandans, the Tutsi, were clustered together, awaiting salvation deep inside Rwanda. <coughs> Those who dared to attempt the journey to their border had 
to contend with the genocide of population you ever made it to Serbia. Foreign embassies and high commissions evacuated their nationals to safety and closed the missions, most of them leaving their lawyers, local staff behind to die. Ten Belgian soldiers needlessly lost their lives. Then the UN withdrew most of its effective deterrent military forces and its commanding officer who was amongst those who, re who refused to leave Tutsis behind and later lost his mind. Troops from DRC joined forces with the former Rwandan government but found themselves engaged in a conflict which they had little understanding. Time was at, at, of the essence. Mandatory decisive military action by the Rwandan Patriotic Front led to a rapid cessation of the extermination phase and the total liberation of Rwanda. Professor Mahmoud Mamdani records the words of a soldier in his book entitled When Victims Become Killers, which reads, when we captured, when we captured Kigali, we thought we would face criminals in the state. Instead, we faced a criminal population. Underlying his, statements, his statement was the realization that though ordered by a minority of state functionaries, the slaughter was performed by hundreds of thousands of ordinary citizens, including judges, human rights activists, doctors, nurses, priests, teachers, friends, and spouses of the victims. The massive participation of, population, of the population in the Rwanda genocide is without documented historical precedent. Indeed, the very popularity of public participation is just what makes the genocide against the Tutsi so unthinkable. We must never forget the important fact that during the extermination stage in Rwanda, an environment of extreme civil disorder existed in tandem with the upheaval of war. <coughs> this allowed for all manners of genocidal crime to be, to, to be committed for which the entire population of Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa and others was at risk. Civilians, militia, and military crimes, including murder, rape, robbery, and arson to name but a few, and we owe it to mankind to keep alive the memory of the shared suffering of all those victims of disconnected wartime immoralities. At the end of the extermination phase, the genocide against the Tutsi, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of the extermination phase of the genocide against the Tutsi, the death toll was estimated to be between 800,000 and 1,500,000 of people. Running parallel to the liberation process was a massive exodus of refugees, the largest and fastest exodus in human history. <coughs> Unlike refugees' flows in all other worlds, the Rwandan exodus was not of a large number of individuals seeking safety, but a large-scale, century-directed tactical retreat by genocidal killers. This large, unprecedented convocation of mass murderers, intermingled with unwilling hostages, moved swiftly at a rate of a quarter of a million per day into a secure nourishing of the UN, UNHCR where it remains at this very day and where they're still committing atrocities in the DRC. <coughs> this brings us to the final stage of genocide, the stage for us to sit up and pay attention, the stage for us to take stock of events, to rethink our strategies, to focus on the welfare of our offsprings and above all things to reclaim our humanity. The denial is the final stage that always follows the human catastrophe. <coughs> denial is the most diplomatic, diplomatic stage of genocide. It is the calmest, it is the most academic, it is the most imaginative and the most eloquent and yet in December it is by far the deadliest. Denial is indeed the surest indicator of the potential further genocidal massacres. All through history, the perpetrators of genocide dig up the mass, the mass graves, burn birdies, try to cover up the evidence and intimidated, intimidated the witnesses. All through history, they readily deny that they committed any crimes 
and often blame what happened on the victims. They block investigation of the crimes and continue to govern until driven out from power by force, whereupon they flee into exile and continue to pontificate. There they remain in exile and act with impunity unless they are captured and tried. In this regard, the anatomy of denial in the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda is no different from other past genocide, and anything different would not have been the traditional human genocide or norm. What does make Rwanda unique was the massive participation of all level of all level of population in the atrocities. This fact alone seeds the entire population today with a countrywide mixture of perpetrators, witnesses, and survivors, all living in close proximity to one another. It comes as no surprise by, therefore that to date, there are about 200 reported cases in which survivors and witnesses have been killed over the past 15 years. The ongoing killing of people <coughs> as a direct consequence of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi is a, a, matter, is, it's a matter of grave concern. What is disappointing is the lack of media and scholastic attention this receives. Denial <coughs> is a phrase that requires academic fortitude and judging by the high academic caliber of many of the perpetrators of genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, you can be rest assured that there is no shortage of it. There is no shortage in scope and of learning and in depth of learning. And with academic skill comes eloquent genocidal linguistic terminology. And two new terms come to the forefront in the aftermath, the aftermath of the extermination phase, revisionism and negationism. Let us for a moment try to grasp the concepts that underlie these two words. Historical revisionism may, may be legitimate or illegitimate. That which is legitimate is by definition the legitimate peer-reviewed scholastic correction of an existing body of historical knowledge. And indeed, whenever a new indisputable body of evidence emerge, emerges, it is only right and fitting <coughs> that appropriate corrections are made in literature. On the other hand, the visionism that is legitimate and which concerns us here today is the illegitimate distortion of denial of or distortion or denial of the historical record such that selected events appear most acceptable. Usually in favor of the criminal perpetrators and the associates. If the mode and manner of the historical revision constitutes denial of a historical crime, then the term negationism is sometimes used. You will understand, therefore, why in the case of Rwanda, I may use one of the other term interchangeably with these. Revisionism is a far cry from propaganda. Propaganda appears to the emotions and to the masses, both of which are spent, are spent forces at this point in time. Revisionism appears to the intellect and to the intellectual thereof. It advances a point of view, and its offsprings are readily absorbed and appreciated by those who are not fully aware of the stage of affairs in Rwanda. <coughs> Intellectuals from inside and outside Africa have a hard choice to make, to believe the verbal and written works of internationally based scholars and self-exiled Rwandan professionals for the cacophony of apparently inintelligible voices from the center of Africa. And indeed, if Africa is perceived internationally to be a jungle continent crawling with illiterate, mindless savages, then the intellectual would say, surely these refined works from scholars of such a distinction must be true. <coughs> the bulk of the presentation and publications that exist and continue to be generated are directed to portray the Tutsi as the primary aggressor and instiga instigators of genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, and the Hutu as the misjudged, distressed party. You will find the same thing happening with the genocide committed against the Jews, whereby they are portrayed to be the instigators 
of their own genocide. Other, others option equal the blame to both sides of Hutu and Tutsi conflict. And the favorite motive theory is the one of double genocide. This theory argues that the Hutu had such an overwhelming numerical, organizational, and military superiority that in order for forces of the Tutsi-led Rwandan Patriotism <coughs> to succeed, they would have needed to use exceptional forces in both magnitude and brutality in order to break the resolve of the Hutu population. And in so doing, they effectively carried out a genocide of their own. <coughs> the theory concludes it was not possible to achieve victory otherwise. That being the case, both sides are to blame for the genocide and should share equal responsibility. Negationism, legitimism by denial of the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda is the true outcome <coughs> of the seasoned revisionists. It is structured and scientific and characterized by several categories and subcategories that we may extrapolate from the works of Deborah Lachstadt, Michael Schimmer, and Alex Grobman. The first category, outright denial, rejects the very existence of genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda and relegates it to the status of a civil war. The second category, the deflective negationism, admits the existence of a genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda but channels the guilt for its perpetration, its perpetration in several distinctions, therefore creating several subcategories based on the target into which guilt is deflected. This may include historical argument, which according to, according to which the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda was the price paid by the Tutsi for the past atrocities and, the sub, and subjug, subjugation of the Hutus. Conspirational, conspiratorial arguments, according to which Uganda, Britain, and the US conspired to diminish French influence in Africa and create an Anglophone Tutsi supremacy in Central Africa. Defensive arguments, according to which the Tutsi, by their aggressive nature of actions, forced the Hutu to resort to legitimate measures <coughs> of self-defense. Reactive arguments, according to which the disloyalty manifested by Tutsi toward the Rwandan government triggered a backlash against themselves. Vindictive arguments in which Hutu extremists suggest that the Tutsi as a collective planned, provoked, and orchestrated the genocide against themselves. Environmental arguments which highlight poverty of a population, poor agricultural yields against the background of illiteracy. And then there is multifactorial argument which is any of the combined combination of all the possible arguments. The third category, selective negationism, which is a mixture of outright and deflective negationism, acknowledges that genocide occurred, but denies any participation of one or the other group in, the, in its perpetration. Its promoters typically reject involvement of their own countries in the genocide against the Tutsi. The visionism, the visionists typically advance their views on the local, regional, and international stage by presenting forged documents as if they were genuine, by providing good reasons as to why genocide, <coughs> genuine documents are not to be trusted, by deliberately mis misinterpreting and mistranslating Nyarwanda into other languages, especially in the refugee camps in the Congo. They attend talk shows and conferences, they publish widely, they use the same vehicles that brought the horrors of genocide into our homes and into our lives. To add to the confusion, websites, movies, books, and scholastic dissertations have been written by supposedly credible authors. Now, a growing number of internet sites associated with Hutu extremist hate groups are popping up and disseminating aberrant information. Where in the past an individual was once limited to printing and distributing this information in a single small geographic location, now the same individual can broadcast 
thousands of messages of deceit across oceans and continents, into bombs, <coughs> academic institutions, and corridors of immense power with no more than a click of a mouse, of a computer mouse. Right now, there is so much disinformation in the public domain that even the most discerning scholars and astute politician is easily confused and taken for a ride. What makes both the exile and the resident Rwandan revisionists so convincing and so dangerous is the fact that behind all this deception, the deception they actually know the truth. Their modest operandi, as Mark Twain puts it, is get your facts first, and then you can distort them as you please. As for all the other non-Rwandan revisionists, from all walks of life, politicians, judges, academics, academics, analysts, NGOs, and the list goes on, they all have two things in common, confidence and ignorance. There is, however, a special worrisome category of revisionists, the governmental revisionists. These governmental revisionists are national governments motivated by guilt. Either the guilt of active participation directed or by proxy which we fully understand, or the guilt of non-intervention, or even the occasional abstraction for which excuses bound. Saving face and maintaining the moral high ground is the prime motivation force behind the revisionist approach to the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. What is worrisome about this, about the genocide of proactive government revisionist is the enormous international influence and available resources of the at their disposal and the readiness and length to which they are prepared to go make the world believe them. Such is the fickle mixture of men where saving face is more important than saving lives. One of the most glaring examples of proactive state support supported revisionism culminated in the arrest in Germany of a senior female Rwandan government diplomat last year of November 9th. This arrest was on the basis of an international warrant of arrest issued in, 19, in 2006 by an aging independent French judge who has since retired. This warrant of arrest also targeted high-ranking Rwandan officials, including the current head of state of Rwanda, President Kagame. The world was asked to believe that this lady, a refined diplomat, had offered comfort, aid, and sustenance to a group of shady national terrorists of Rwanda Tutsi extraction, and that these terrorists, armed with a large Soviet-made surface-to-air some 16 missile, had routed into Kigali by day and waited amidst the military fortification of the Kigali International Airport for the return of the president of Jerimana. When all quiet and all was dark, the terrorists keyed into the dark, the dark night sky, singled out the presidential plane from amongst others, and shot it down. Then, Abakradaba, they vanished in a puff of smoke. The world was expect, expected to believe, and still is, that the genocide may never have taken place if this incident had not occurred. However, it suffices to say that you will need a lot more than just a good pair of eyes to decide who is who in the dark night sky, and you will need to be amongst the chosen few before you would ever know the detailed flight path of a president in an office. Adolf Hitler once said, and I quote, we shall give a propaganda reason for starting the war, whether it is plausible or not. The victor will not be asked whether he told the truth. But then Hitler, just like his Hutu Rwandan fathers, went on to lose the war. Today, the masterminders of genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda and their associates may delay, but cannot ex escape their obligation to explain their actions to the whole world. <coughs> this is therefore no surprise that revisionists 
The world over, take much comfort and delight in the fact that the French political decision to retract this arrest warrant is not forthcoming. They perch like virtues on the moral high ground and profess to the world, citing that a political decision to resolve this issue would amount to political interference, comprise, compromise the independence of the French ju judiciary, and mask what may well be the truth. One that is probably in the thralls of the Fashoda syndrome. The Fashoda syndrome has nothing to do with the well-being of Rwanda nation. It is the unofficial name given to a tendency within French foreign policy in Africa, which gives importance to the assertion of French influence in areas which may become susceptible to British influence. For you, of fine history if you draw a British line from Cape Town to Cairo and French line from Dakar to Djibouti, where the two lines intersect is the Fashoda, known as Koro, on the Nile in the Sudan. During the scramble for Africa, it was believed that whosoever would control Fashoda would control Africa. In 1898, the French major Martian locked up First, the Fashoda with the exhausted Ragtag army. Few months after, Field Marshal Horatio Herbert Kishner of Imperial Majesty Royal Navy showed up, and the rest was history. Today, the choice between a predominantly Anglophone as opposed to French leadership in Rwanda is a bitter pill to swallow in French cycles and sweet pill in the British cycles in the Rwandan cycles. Since the Rwandans are not linguistically deprived, there's no need to swallow any pill. Rwanda is a Kenyan Rwanda formed country, and the sooner the whole world appreciates that, the better it is. For the resolve of this final stage of genocide, we must not forget our international friends, the nice, misguided, influential, bandwagon <coughs> type of I love you revisionists. People with no inherent malice, but whose influence and unfiltered utterances over the mass media serves as a common folder for the hardcore revisionists. These include some leading movie makers, academics, leading politicians and their spouses, <coughs> lower-ranking embassy officials, tourists, relief workers, and a variety of expatriate workers, etc., etc. This group is big, very big. Section within this group are fomented in prompting the notion that seeds to suggest seems to suggest that genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda occurred because of the global warming. They cite a combination of widespread illiteracy, overwhelming poverty, poor agricultural yields, and overpopulation as the leading cause of genocide. This popular group needs your help, and once tamed, they actually may be very useful. There are revisionists in Europe, in Africa, whose duty is to do good, and yet whose words and practices have put a smile on certain space himself. Revisionism prompted by grief is an unfortunate aftermath of any tra tragedy, and people will always think of what life would have been if the tragedy had not occurred. Grief is a strong human emotion that briefly clouds the mind of even the most rational thinker, and only passage of time is its remedy. It is true that the extermination of almost, is almost over, but now, in this phase of denial, Rwanda is a country that still faces the risk of invasion from a predominantly Hutu ramp state in the Congo. This ramp state, housed within the security and sanctity of UN refugee camps, consists of former Rwandan government that persisted over the genocide, presided over the genocide, I'm sorry. The faithful foreign backers, the, backers, the former Rwandan National Army, and the militia along with an estimated mass population of two million, both serving <coughs> as human shield and recruit reservoir. The presence of this state coupled 
with the intransigent of government revisionists, there's a constant reminder that the fight is not over, that the final stage of genocide is not over. Then there is the matter of legislation. Truth needs no law to mandate its acceptance, and the truth of genocide in Rwanda is a clear to anyone who chooses to critically examine the recorded events, or to remember what they saw, or to remember what they did. And in any case, in this age of information, we, we were all in Rwanda to see ourselves. Anti-revisionist laws are entirely different matter. Anti-revisionists and anti-hate anti speech laws exist in France, Belgium, Israel, Germany, Austria, and a few other countries. These laws prohibit the public revision or denial of Jewish history as it pertains to the Holocaust and seeks to criminalize hate speech. Some of you here may have heard of David John Caldwell Evan. In November of 05, Mr. Evan, the author of over 30 books, was arrested in Austria and charged with the speech crime of trivializing the Holocaust. He was denied bail and sub subsequently sentenced to three years of imprisonment. It matters not whether it matters not whether or not he had genuine academic point of view. What matters is his view is that his views run contrary to the views of those who suffered the most, contrary to the historical evidence, evidence and contrary to the written law. Such is, that, such is the standard by which the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda must be measured. Therefore, local and international anti-revisionist legislation is both a matter of vital necessity and urgency. It is inspiring to know that legislation has been over evaluated in Rwanda to deal with the Rwandan revisionists and negationists in the same manner. It is only right that the rest of the world follow and enact and enforce appropriate law that deal with the matter of Rwandan revisionists within their borders. <coughs> it is, after all, our understanding that genocide committed against the Tutsi in Rwanda was indeed a crime against humanity and therefore must be treated as such. Of course, we would expect the revisionists to say that the Rwandan government would like to suppress their versions of the truth by enacting laws, but in enacting laws, we must recognize the philosophy of Plato and accept that. Laws are partly formed to, for the sake of good men in order to instruct them how they may live on friendly terms with one another, and partly for the sake of those who refuse to be instructed and whose spirit cannot be subdued, softened, or hindered from plunging into evil. Within Rwanda itself, where then, where then do we draw the line to distinguish between freedom of speech and the concern for national, for national security? <coughs> Just how harmful are the unchecked wedging tongues of the local population in public and private? How dangerous are the revisionist sentiments of the school teachers, the market vendors, and the perpetual, the perpetual drunkards? There will always be a healthy debate between those who feel that the right to free speech should be restricted with respect to hate speech and those who feel that the civil liberty of free speech of the individual should be upheld above all things. What makes culture diversity change into culture and mosley? How provocative and dangerous is it for Rwandans to refer to, refer to themselves by their proud culture roots as Hutu, Tutsi, and Kwa? Some of these things are difficult to quantify, but we must recall that progression of events that eventually leads to genocide start with these exact problems. However, this only becomes a real problem when organizations take root. Post-genocide Rwanda has taken a bold step in ethnic, and ethnic classification has officially disappeared in all Rwandans, and all Rwandans are again what they ostensibly once were, simply Rwandans. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I say this to you, the challenge to right the wrongs of the past and to, and to present, to discuss, 
To document and to disseminate the history of Rwanda is the sole responsibility of the people of, the, of Rwanda and their friends. And this, it is precisely because of that challenge that we are gathered here tonight, or today. Excuse me. The visionist is armed with two powerful tools, his tongue and his pen. The spoken word is soon forgotten because what is not written is like water on a dark's back. The written words will not disappear. What the revisionist writes will not go away. Responding to each and every new imaginative concussion is death trap in itself. For every single reasonable response or countermeasure you try to make to a revisionist's allegation, you will receive 10 new exciting fabrications. You will be pleased to know that we have three weapons in our armamentarium, our tongue, our pen, and the truth. The challenge is upon us all, especially on all Rwandans and their friends, to compile, document, and publish an accurate history of genocide. The same public platform and avenues of mass communication available to the most tireless, tireless revisionists are also available to us. The onus is upon us to use them diligently and daily and the people of the world will listen and read. Soon we will we join the voices of revisionism, revisionists with the truth. We should all support the hearings and the readings more from our Rwandan authors, historians, and philosophers. Distinguished guests, and ladies and gentlemen, we commend Rwandan people for their efforts and the Rwandan government the effort by them and others like them will eventually succeed in bringing this genocidal phase of revisionism and negationism to its ultimate end. And will give Rwandans a home in the diaspora, the encouragement, the directions, and perseverance to rally behind the nation's mantra of never again. I thank you all gathered here today for coming here and sharing the history, the struggle, and the aspiration of a nation, of a nation once divided, and in final summation, in all that has been said, I will leave you with the words of Richard Cohen: "The truth is the last victim of genocide." I thank you. Paper, but also thank you for your academic contribution, also for your uh, courage and your your strength. So thank you. Um, and just on a personal, on another note that I wanted to say, but I didn't say earlier, David Warren from the ADL is here, and he helped uh, the ADL helped to put this whole event together. So thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. change the subject, but I started this morning in New York City where I gave a talk on incitement to genocide in uh, Iran and radical Islam, and I met um, a survivor from Vienna, a woman who was very powerful uh, as well, talking about her experiences and now listening to this. And, uh, as you said, genocide is, uh, has been around for a while. So, any questions or comments? Yes, please. Yeah, um, I, um, I was just thinking, you, you would know a great deal more about this. It's, first of all, thank you for your inspiring talk and for your, your great courage and truth-telling. Um, I was wondering, um, uh, there, there doesn't seem to be to be any inherent conflict between freedom of expression and, and laws against um, you know, revisionist falsehoods. You know, in certainly in the West, it's, it's very well established that slander and libel are are illegal between individuals. Um, you know, it is it is a it is a crime or at least a tort to say something maliciously um, untrue that you know is untrue about someone. Isn't this? Couldn't this also be as as international law is established the, the case um, between um, or among opinion leaders, 
um, that it is prosecutable to say something malicious that you know to be untrue, to falsify history in this way. I wouldn't see any kind of conflict between that kind of law and freedom of speech or freedom of expression. Um, well, I will comment on that, since it's not a question. But uh, there is actually a conflict. Um, and it's been discussed at the UN. It's always been discussed at the UN and in Geneva, in the human rights. And the United States actually is amongst those states that support freedom of speech. And uh, they don't see anything wrong with someone. How do I say that? Um, there is a freedom of speech, but there is also a way that people could be limited without so much as, how, without taking their rights, if I can mm -hmm. say that. Like for instance, there is um, a well-known Rwandan speaker. I would name him because um, we have been, we are still actually fighting to get him out of conferences. He's the hero behind Hotel Rwanda. And what he says might appear to be the truth, but it's not the truth. So when we approached the government, the US government, they told us that there is freedom of speech. Of course, they know that what he says is not the truth. And why we are fighting to get these laws enacted, especially, because they are enacted, like for instance, when it comes to Holocaust, it's not allowed in Europe. Well, but in the US, it's allowed, actually. Yeah, what I'm saying is that I don't see, I, I know that there are, there are problems and, and, and conflicts that you're facing, but I was just trying to say that I didn't think there was any inherent conflict whatsoever. If I may, thank you. Now, if I may also, um, just an aside, I think to, to sort of support what you're saying, I think the United States has actually become a space, because of the Greeks' freedom of the First Amendment, where um, it's a place where people are using, creating, setting up websites that are disseminating 